Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today, in another of our series, The Great Strategists, we are here to discuss the life and work of Kavalam Madhava Panikkar, an Indian scholar-statesman and the author of, among dozens of other works, India and the Indian Ocean, an essay on the influence of sea power on Indian history. Someone who helped shape the foreign and security policy of independent India. As American strategy in the Indo-Pacific region increasingly seeks to integrate India in a network of alliances in response to the rising power of China, all students interested in the region should devote their attention to the roots of contemporary Indian strategic thought. Luckily for us at the Army War College, we have a colleague in the Department of National Security and Strategy who has studied these issues and who joins us today to talk about Panikkar's life, career, and influence. Professor Patrick Bratton is the Halsey Chair of Naval Studies at the U.S. Army War College and the head of the South Asia Regional Studies Program. He specializes in Indian foreign and security policy and maritime issues, and we are delighted to have him with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Professor Patrick Bratton. Uh, Thank you for having me, Ron. So who was Panikkar, and how influential was his work? Those are complicated questions to to answer on both sides. I'll I'll take them in order. Um, In terms of who he was, this is really sort of a true early 20th century sort of Renaissance individual. So he came from the south of India, uh, which made him a bit unique in the sort of generation of the sort of founding fathers of independent India who often came from the north of India. And we can talk a little bit about the significance of that later. But he basically had almost every profession, sort of every sort of intellectual profession that you could, you could come up with. He was a journalist. He was a university professor. He was a historian. He was a diplomat. Um, he was, and then he became sort of one of India's first sort of public intellectuals, particularly in regards to international relations, foreign policy, and security. So I sort of explained him. He was sort of mm-hmm. like the Indian Bob Kaplan, if you will, in sort of the, the 1940s. And particularly, he became a sort of go-to figure. If you were putting on a conference or a panel or an edited volume, or you wanted to have lectures, and you wanted to have a sort of Asian or Indian perspective on security issues. Um, So he was often high in demand, particularly in the time period from about 1943 Mm -hmm. to about 1947. In terms of his influence, this is also interesting because there's there's two or three stories here, depending upon which which sort of profession or metier you would like to engage with. On the one hand, he's a very well-known historian. He wrote books. I mean, sometimes he was writing, I don't know, two or three books a year. It's quite amazing. And these range not just from books, but this include history, theater, all sorts of different pursuits. So he's very well known as a history of India, of Western imperialism within Asia and India, and then also geostrategic mm-hmm. thought and naval strategy. On the other hand, he also was an important diplomat. 
uh, for India, serving in key places in, in the beginnings of the Cold War, including to both uh, nationalist China and then the PRC, also to Egypt and then to France, and then also some posting at the UN as well in the 1940s. So depending upon which panicker we're talking about, he, he does have a great deal of influence. And there's a debate, if you will, about how much influence he has, he has often had. Similar to often discussions we have at the at the War College about where we often talk about Clausewitz, but we're kind of open about how much we've internalized Clausewitz right. or any of these other theorists, right? Other than maybe just having a hand wave that you put him in doctrine or something. Uh, there is a debate about how much influence Panikar has had on the Indian Navy and Indian naval thought as well. But I'll, sure, I'll no, I, but that's that I think is an interesting there. question, right? You never know. You know certainly, if a guy keeps writing books and the books stay in print, right? He has some influence, but what do they actually mean? Um, you know, how often are contemporary officers picking these things up? But I, but I want to talk about uh, a little bit about Panikar's historical vision and especially a couple of phrases that he used because in India and the Indian Ocean, he's writing this book, he publishes it in 1945. So the war is coming to an end, but India is not independent. And yet he talks about India as if India is a an independent actor in world affairs to a certain extent. He says India should partner with Britain and whatnot, but but he is pointing out that a, a historical epoch has come to an end, what he calls the, the Bosco da Gama epoch, right? That goes back to when the Europeans arrived in India uh, and then that the Europeans controlled the sea lanes, controlled the area, but now the time has come for a new era to begin. And so, so he writes this book. And so the question I have for you is, how did he imagine India sort of asserting or reasserting its role uh, in the Indian Ocean? It's a very interesting question. I think this stems back from being from the south of, of India and having a larger mm -hmm. sort of maritime awareness uh, than many of his contemporaries who come from north of India and that's really sort of one of his main sort of themes in history is this, what he calls a dialectic of Indian history between a terrestrial northern Indian view that's very much looking toward West Asia and Central Asia, and then a southern Indian view that's much more connected to the Indian Ocean region, Southeast Asia, Persian Gulf, and so on. And for him, he really sees that there's this example of sort of Indian history or an important stream of Indian history mm -hmm. that has been sort of forgotten. But it's key for him because he would argue that really India and then Asia writ large lost their independence only when they lost control of the seas. And so the, the narrative of sovereignty, of independence, of power is, in, is sort of linked for him with sea power and maritime control. And so for him, thinking about the future of India or Asia writ large in the later book that he wrote, in order to have that, they would have to have some influence or control over the seas around their, their certain national boundaries and so on. It's interesting you mentioned the war. Um, this is kind of a funny his, historical sort of story that's not well known. In response to the Japanese uh, attack on British colonies in World War II, the, the British India, British Indian government gets together a study group to think about the future of Asian and British Indian security in the post-World War, post-World War II world. And so they're thinking about what they should be doing, how technology, how politics, independence movements are going to change British Asian security in the 40s. One of their challenges, though, is they wanted to cultivate also Indian thinkers that would think in a very similar sort of British way about security. And Panikar for them was one of these, one of these individuals. And unfortunately, they were not allowed to have Indians join the study group. But what 
some of them were able to do because they were friends with Pamelkoop was to actually help and encourage his work in the public sphere because it served right. their purposes in terms of policy. And so some of his work actually was able to get around wartime censors because of his friends like Guy Wint. But uh, I mean, I, I, I was sitting here and I, uh, we don't have video here on, on a, uh, for the podcast, but I rolled my eyes at the idea that the British decided to have a study group about the future of India, but they didn't invite any Indians to join because goodness <laughs> knows we don't want to know what they might think because they might say, they might say naughty words like independence. Um, right. And yet, here's a, here's a question too that I think about that because you, you, um, I'm glad you pointed out how you know, Panicker points out this um, dichotomy in, in Indian thought that there's so much of a focus on terrestrial war and even in in the at the War College when we read Cautilia, right, his focus is is almost in, entirely about land warfare and about the building of empires in northern India leading up into Asia. Um, what did Panicker think about the significance of partition? And what that meant for essentially focusing Indian security policy on the northern border with uh, Pakistan. Did he have? Did, oh. did that bother him? Did he? Have, or did did he feel like this was a distraction? That is a complicated question, mm. actually. And I don't think my own views. I don't think he totally came to terms with that. Mm. And you see bits and pieces of it in his writing, and it 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 paints a very complicated picture. On the one hand, he has this sort of myopic view, and he writes about this a couple of places, that he thought, and this is pretty original at the time, that if there was partition, this actually might solve communal tensions, uh, which is not something, it was not part of sort of Indian national narrative, right, in the Certainly 1940s, not, right? right? But he mentions this in passing in a few of his works, because he felt that Asian nations post-independence would become, would sort of go on this general Indian trajectory toward liberal democracy. And so if you had governments that more accurately represented people, mm -hmm. um, this would get rid of a lot of community tensions. And so he, he has a couple throwaway lines. They're not very well formed about, well, if Pakistan gets independent, India's there, uh, then we can have like a security partnership with them and everything will be great. Um, so a bit a bit myopic, um, but a well, bit different the rest. It's oddly, actually, it's oddly hopeful, though, right? That's oddly right. hopeful. The idea that states that are comfortable in their borders and comfortable with their populations wouldn't have to fight each other over their borders. Yes, and there's a couple interesting pieces here beyond Pakistan that, that are worth exploring. He was actually more worried about the loss of British colonial posts and strategic locations like Singapore and Aden. Hmm. He felt that was actually more threatening for British for Indian security. Um, that India would no longer be able to control the Indian Ocean as a closed sea, the way the Portuguese and the British would. And so he was actually much more focused on that. I'm talking about having, say, independent India having security arrangements with other post-colonial uh, areas so that it could close the Indian Ocean if needed. Uh, he also has some very interesting ideas that don't get talked about these days about how he felt the key to security in the post-Cold War uh, post-World War uh, world was to have representative government for all of the newly independent Asian nations. And there's a bit of a, I think, um, how do I say, mirror imaging involved where he looked at Indochina, he looked at Indonesia and sort of felt that they would have independence trajectories very similar to India mm -hmm, right. uh, rather than necessarily armed conflicts and revolutions and civil wars and insurgencies. He felt this would be a very democratic sort of process. And then after World War II, 
we would have all of these Asian nations that would form some sort of regional organization of syncretic Asian democracies, if you will. Hmm. See, this, they're, they're, it's fascinating to me because we talk about – so. Panikkar, he is an Indian nationalist in the sense that he does believe in a, in a strong India and he wants to see India succeed. However, um, he and he and he writes about Hinduism right? he, and among his other writings. But as we talked about a little bit before we started, that he goes out of his way in his essays to say there is no natural connection between Hinduism and pacifism. Um, and he says, because otherwise, why would we have had these these empires to begin with if we were pacifists? Which puts him in an odd place within the Indian independence movement of the late, of, of the, the mid 20th century. Um, but there's also the issue of, you know, where would Panikkar fit in current discussions of Indian nationalist identity that associate Indian nationalism with Hindu nationalism? Would that, would that be a, a, an easy fit for Panikkar? Who this, you, you, you were asking all of the tricky questions today, <laughs> Ron. I, I think you're exactly right. He, he, he is one of these, not the only one, but he's mm. one of the lone sort of realist sort of views, although he's not entirely realist. I mean, who, who is actually only realist or liberal, right? Um, but he's what, in comparison to Nehru and many of the others, right, he, he really had this belief about geography, strategy, power, these types of things. And he certainly wasn't a, a, a pacifist. So his ideas are picked up fairly early on, particularly by the Navy. But one of the key things, as you well mentioned, Pakistan, the realities of Indian security concerns post-independence tend to be very terrestrial based, based on borders, whether it's Pakistan or China or internal insurgencies in the Northeast and other places. And so for <clears throat> until today, right, the, the Indian Navy always rec- refers to itself as the Cinderella service, right, because it's got the smallest budget. So now in the past 20 or so years that India is looking outward and it's investing more, relatively speaking, in the Navy. Panikkar has had a kind of resurgence. And I would argue it's not just in India. Uh, he also is one of the few sort of well-known Asian maritime theorists or naval theorists. So you'll be seeing things about South China Sea or Japan, South Korea, China. And Panikkar's quotes and, and writings will be quoted in a non-Indian Ocean, non-Indian context. So he naturally fits. So if you see some of the, like the 2015 Indian maritime strategy, you know, it has a very Panikkar flavor to it in terms of geography, quoting him, and so on. So at least in the Navy and some of these other places, his vision has been taken up. And I think as well, the importance, the link between sovereignty and wealth and maritime power is also something that we've seen in the past 15, 10 to 15 years uh, picked up in Indian political circles. In terms of his link with a more robust sort of Hindu identity or nationalist identity, it's tricky. So the Modi government has really privileged um, new ways of looking at Indian foreign policy and strategy, which often stress maritime issues, blue economy, uh, regional connectivity, which of course flow into Panikkar. The tricky thing though, um, is while he is very well known as being this maritime theorist, his diplomatic record is a bit more mixed. And rightly or wrongly, uh, during his time as ambassador to China, Panikkar is normally blamed as sort of, you know, just like the same way um, McCarthyism blamed the State Department for losing China. Yeah. Panikkar is sort of the guy, Panikkar and the Nehru, or the, the guys who lost Tibet, right? Oh. And so if you're a, a nationalist, uh, you believe that Panikkar 
sort of advise Nehru that we need better relations with China. So we're going to sacrifice whatever quote unquote interests or influence that India has over Tibet. And so you have this kind of dichotomy where you'll have somebody very happily quoting Panikkar's writing. On the other hand, maybe 10 minutes later, you know, casting him down with Nehru is sort of losing Tibet and being duped by China. So it's this kind of funny. Um, that sometimes I make the analogy with Mahan, where mm-hmm. Mahan was well known as a naval theorist, but he was well known as being a poor naval officer. Um, <laughs> that perhaps there's a similarity uh, in the sort of memory of, uh, of Panikkar's legacy. Well, and you you hit on two things that I definitely, I'm sure our audience will be interested in, and that I want to make sure that we talked about. And that is, Panikkar does have a track record with China. He is ambassador of both the Chinas. He is considered sympathetic to Mao. And to and to Zhou and to the and to the PRC, um, and so you know you mentioned the Tibet question, right? That that was you know did he encourage China, uh, India to take a soft line? Now Panikkar dies in 1963, so right around the time that India and China end up fighting a war, um, which uh, has sort of shapes the current relationship, let's say, between India and China, and so it does raise this interesting question that on the one hand, the fight over the Himalayan border with China is a traditional Indian terrestrial imperial conflict. But with the, with the contemporary rise of China and the development of the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the growth of Chinese influence, maritime influence, you know, one could imagine you know, to read your Panikkar who says we need to control the Indian Ocean, which means we need to push back against the Chinese. And yet, um, where is the China, th- let's say, where is the China threat from the perspective of the Indians? And and how, if at all, does this uh, does Panikkar shape contemporary, or can he shape contemporary Indian thought about the relationship with China? And what should? And then one more step, because I've got too many questions, but I want to throw this one into, and then I'll let you talk. Is for Americans who want to understand the best way to encourage the Indians to imagine partnership with the West against China. Um, where are the where are the levers or the soft spots within Panikkar's writings that can help to convince the Indians that this is in their interest? Oh, again, full questions there, Ron. <laughs> um, in terms of contemporary, I think one of the things that Panikkar, and he's very much shaped, um, he had a very robust intellectual interaction with this new generation of British imperial defense theorists in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of grappling, not just with imperial defense, but they're grappling with technological and political change. And they make this controversial argument, which Panikkar also embraces, that this British obsession with frontiers and buffer states and all this kind of stuff, Panikkar and these other and these British strategists argue, well, technology makes all that meaningless. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can have a buffer state in Tibet or Afghanistan or the Himalayas, but we're going to have missiles and planes that will fly over the Himalayas in those buffer states. So this doesn't actually matter given technological change. And so this, again, is one of the reasons arguably Panikkar was a little bit more, I don't know, blase about the value of Tibet uh, in terms yeah. of that for him as a buffer state, he didn't really see them, uh, the value in them. So if we fast forward to today, one could argue, and this is kind of a heretical view, but I'll mention it anyways, that if you think about Sino-Indian rivalry, the advantage that India has is in its backyard in the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. So as the Chinese are very acutely aware of the Malacca dilemma and how vulnerable their sea lines of communication are in the, in the ocean, this is the, the one of the few leverage spots that India has against China. So perhaps it is very useful on the Chinese perspective 
to every now and then probe hard on that border and kind of distract the Indians from that and push them back to where their their more traditional views of security about the importance of borders and frontiers and all this stuff and force them in a game where really they don't have many many advantages uh, against the Chinese mm-hmm. in terms of size, terrain, uh, the amount of money that the Chinese spent on defense, and that the Chinese infrastructure on the border started many, many years before the Indian infrastructure. So Panaker, I think, in a sense, would be like, well, why would you why would you try to do this symmetrically? You could do this asymmetrically in, 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 the, in, in the maritime domain where we have an advantage. That's a hard sell. Um, in a country with disputed borders, where the army uh, is is the is the is the gets the lion's share of the defense budget, there's also I'll risk here just one second. The Indian, the British Indian Army has a long history, and the Independent Indian Army has absorbed much of that history. The other two services for India are much more recent, and for the most part, the British Indian government actually depended upon the normal British armed services for those security. So one could argue that the strategic thinking and the integration of these other domains into mainstream sort of Indian strategic thought has been a bit slower than one would think. Like, for example, not to be Cliff Clavin for a second, but the (laughs) the Indian Navy is actually younger than the Indian Air Force. So that's a, that's an interesting um, so, thought, right? Because we think it, of navies it, as ancient as ancient arms of uh, of you know, ancient branches. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. If um, but I'll switch. I'll pivot, if you will, to your other question about the U.S. and India. I, I think it offers a couple of lessons here. And one thing we had talked a little bit about before the interviews. One thing that Panaker suggests, which is a bit controversial in the time, is he sort of assumed Britain would be still an extra-regional power in Asia. Mm-hmm. And he felt, hey, there's no way India is going to spend enough on a navy uh, to, to, deal with, to deal with potential future threats. So he, first, first, he, he sort of foresaw a, a sort of integration or interaction or a defense agreement of some kind between India and Britain or the Commonwealth or something. As the 40s go on and Britain is sort of divesting itself from Asia, he sees that the United States is that new potential sort of extra-regional partner. And he felt that was important to have a partnership with, a, with, with another state that didn't have territories uh, that could sort of get in the way and cause tension mm-hmm. uh, between India and this other country. So there's a natural sort of uh, link there, if you will, with the United States. And I think if you, if you think about the history of sort of Indo-U.S. cooperation, it's very been much focused on the maritime domain. Mm-hmm. And that's been the longest run of exercises that we've had with the Indians. Uh, and so I think that the, the maritime domain and India's maritime security is is a natural place of cooperation. Mm-hmm. And it's it's much harder on the land for, mm-hmm. for various reasons, although that's important as well. Right. It's just always going to be slower and more difficult. Yeah, because I imagine that when you start talking about cooperating on the land, that's where we got into the issues with Pakistan and issues about Afghanistan and questions of... Yeah, uh, they're the various disputed borders. Well, so and literally this morning, while I was getting ready for our conversation, I saw a headline in the news that India was starting a new um, uh, combination of diplomatic offensive, let's call it, to pry the Sri Lankans away from China. 
at least this was the the implication was that India was thinking about how they could make sure that the Chinese influence, thanks to the Belt and Road Initiative in Sri Lanka and in, in Indian, Indian Ocean, that that India needed to pay special attention to um, to responding to that, that they couldn't just sort of sit back and let the Chinese build out their connections. And so I think about, you know, what are India's relations with its neighbors in the Indian Ocean, with Sri Lanka, um, but even when I think across across to the um, to the Arabian Peninsula, um, what are those relations like now, and uh, what would Panikar tell us about what they should be? This is tricky. Um, you had mentioned our buddy uh, Katilio or Charnakia earlier, mm-hmm. and this is where I think his insights, even if we are to include maritime dimension to this, are valuable. So again, Katilia predicts, right, states that have borders with each other will probably have frostier relations, and they'll look for another country, one country over for their ally. So what you have in South Asia, um, because of geography, uh, one thing I always joke with students is that if you were to take Pakistan and Bangladesh and put them in any other region, they'd be huge countries. Hmm, but because they border India, they look small, yeah. right? And, but they're huge, whether it's in terms of size, uh, Pakistan, in terms of population, both of these countries. So you have a, a region with one huge country in terms of landmass and terms of population, now economy. And it's got m- other smaller countries. And none of these other smaller countries share borders with each other. But they all share borders or maritime borders with India. And so that creates a different regional dynamic where... Perhaps, again, the large country wants to be the sort of hegemon of the region. And the other countries have a bit of friction uh, with the big brother, as as India Mm -hmm. is often called in the region, sort of pushing their weight around the way that big brothers sometimes do to younger brothers uh, in families. And so this natural kind of tension uh, or frustration at times with the Indians pushing their weight around to, to get what they want in the region has provided that opportunity that an extra regional actor like China who comes in with a lot of resources is quite attractive. Mm-hmm. And so for many of the smaller South Asian countries, there's a desire to, to play um, these two countries. And I think this is really important because the conventional narrative we have in the United States, right, is the Belt and Road is here and debt trap diplomacy. And, you know, it's the new Chinese colonialism. And I'm not saying any of that is necessarily wrong per se, but it removes agency from the smaller countries. Mm-hmm. These smaller countries, again, if there's only one country in play, right, it's a little bit harder. Two countries in play, opportunities, but dangers often often are there. And I think that's something that's that's important to see is that, again, this history of these relations, right? The Sri Lankans remember the Indian involvement in the Sri Lankan Civil War in the 1980s. Um, the you know Bangladesh, although relations are much better, there's always border and refugee and smuggling issues that happen on the border. So again, the attractiveness of China is there. Uh, but again, I it, again I would more see a lot of these countries with the ability of, of try, their interest to be in play rather mm-hmm. than to be firmly into one camp. Interesting. And of course, that's the, the issue for India as it emerges as more than a regional power and gets involved in the global economy is India now sees itself uh, in playing in a league with large powers like China, like the United States, like Russia, and that it's going to pursue its interests as it sees them. And so uh, as we get to the end of this conversation to talk about what's on people's minds right now, the way that the United States and India, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, how relations have improved and gotten closer um, in response to China. 
But the war in Ukraine has reminded a lot of Americans that India has a long traditional uh, relationship with Russia. And how does the relationship with Russia fit into Indian strategic thought? There's a long history in Indian strategic culture of what, you know, non-alignment mm-hmm. was the big, the big buzzword during the Cold War. And the ideological dimension of foreign policy for India, I, th- I think, often gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. And so the importance of the non-aligned movement and the Pan-Asian movement, uh, Afro-Asian movement in the Cold War, drove a lot of Indian foreign policy. However, on the other hand, uh, there's a kind of a, this is a simplification, and some people might object to this, but for a long time, there's sort of an association in Indian foreign policy thinking that alliances have a kind of a colonial aspect to them. Mm-hmm. And so you get, in a, you get into an alliance with a country, and then they put bases in your country and other things like that, and they get a say. And again, the Indian perspective, you know, looks at the, the history of U.S. alliance structures and British alliance structures, right? And so there's a kind of a colonial read there. So there's a reluctance to have sort of formal alliances uh, with that. So nowadays, Indians, the Indian foreign policy establishment often talks about sort of strategic autonomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we were friends to all enemies, enemies to none, so to speak. And so one thing that you'll often have is you'll have Indian diplomats very proudly say, hey, we're going to be very good relations with you, the United States. We want to have a good relationship, but we're also going to have a good relationship with Russia. Mm-hmm. And we want to have a good relationship with Iran. And we want to have a good relationship with Israel. Right. And we, mm-hmm. we, we have we have interests uh, in all of these countries. And we're not going to necessarily choose uh, between them. The relationship with Russia is is tricky because it's very longstanding, right? Mm-hmm. So even though India was non-aligned, one could say there was a definite tilt uh, by the 1970s uh, toward the Soviet Union. And by the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on, Soviet Union and then Russia later had supplied about 70%, give or take, of the Indian, Indian military platforms. Uh, so this percentage has decreased. And you'll see lots of charts of the past 10 years, how how India has been mostly for the past five or 10 years, one of the world's largest arms importers, or many years, the world's largest arms importer. And more and more of that stuff is coming from the United States, from France, from Israel, and other places in Russia. The tricky thing, though, there's a, as we would say in the United States, there's a whole bunch of legacy platforms and systems uh, that are Russian, and they need spare parts, uh, they need maintenance, they need ammunition. Uh, and there's also some technological development programs uh, that they work with the Russians. And most controversially is the, the, the S-400 air defense system that's been right. sort of perennially in the U.S. Uh, the U.S. As, um, sort of viewpoint. So that relationship is important uh, to the Indians. Uh, and so that's where you see this bit of a, a distance, if you will, between, say, U.S. positions on Russia and Ukraine right now versus sort of the official Indian position uh, on it. And I, and I think that's something... As at least what I've seen uh, over the past 10, 12 years, part of the maturing in the relationship between India and the United States, I think, has been a growing empathy and respect for the differences of opinion on these issues. Mm-hmm. And so, the, sort of the old days, like, you got to pick a side. Um, I don't see that in the, the discourses as much as one would, would have seen before. Right. I, I think an interesting aspect might be, and this is me purely speculating here, uh, so I could be totally wrong. Don't quote me on this. Uh, or, but if I'm right, quote me on this. <laughs> um, given the experience of the Russian army and military in the Ukraine in the past five or so weeks, 
I'm curious to see what impact that does for future Russian arms sales uh, in various places. I got to tell you. Uh, and whether or not countries yes. decide, well, maybe I, we shouldn't buy that system. Just a thought. Just a thought. Uh, and actually a, a thought for, we'll have to bring you back to talk about this. Uh, just as I've, I've often wondered, right, during the Middle East wars of the 1970s, right, those were great advertisements for uh, for the uh, F-4 Phantom and the F-16 over the MiG-21, because uh, that that happens as well. But the idea of uh, what does uh, what does war do for us to think about uh, relationships. However, um, as we've got about the end of our time here, to remember that India's relationship with Russia goes back further than last month, goes back further than last year, and that uh, understanding any nation's strategic culture requires spending some time thinking about its roots and thinking about its historical actors like our friend Panikar, who was the subject for today. So there's a lot more to talk about, but I'm afraid we're about out of time for now. Patrick Bratton, thank you for joining us on A Better Peace to talk about Panikar and Indian strategic culture. Thank you for having me, Ron. Thanks, Patrick. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and on all the programs and any suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. You know you want to. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast because that is how other people can find out about us so that we can continue to broaden the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to future conversations. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.